So there's things that you have to do as a professional to make the best decision for creating the environment for your students to be feel safe in in faltering because they're going to um, when they start learning this way. And then over time, it does get a lot better. So if you can get them to hang with you um, to see the, the payoffs in the long run, tests become less of a big deal. They are, you know, there's just a lot less anxiety in the classroom and there's just more conversation and less stress. Welcome to the Get More Math podcast, where we support teachers in their quest for long-term student gains. This is a podcast for teachers to share their passion for math education, learn best practices from experts in the field, and swap ideas for student success. This is community. This is Get More Math. Hey, everyone. This is Josh Britton with the Get More Math podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Today's guest is Anne Agustinelli. She has been in education for about 15 years. Most of that time, she was a classroom teacher, but she was also a classroom coach. She caught our eye because she wrote a recent article on long-term retention, specifically the strategy of using interleaving to help kids retain material. Let's jump to the conversation. You wrote an article, Interleaving in Math, yep. by um, yourself and August, Augustinelli. Is that correct? Augustinelli? Yes. And, and I don't know how to say Pooch's last name. Can you say it? Uh, hopefully I can say it. I have not actually practiced my retrieval practice lately <laughs> of remembering to do it, but uh, Agarwal. Ag- Agarwal. Okay. Yes. What I'd like to do is kind of talk through the article a little bit. And for starters, w- one thing that I read in your article, which is definitely hit, hits our core idea was kind of, it sounded like it was, I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but you had a sort of a a driving question, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could, you don't have to read what you wrote necessarily, but just kind of explain what what you, the realization you came to. Yeah. So I think when um, Common Core came out, I was in my about fifth or sixth year of teaching. And I have the opportunity uh, to work with students over multiple years um, because of how our schools are set up in Chicago. I'm typically the only middle school math teacher um, that they they have. So I get to have them for at least two years, sometimes three years. And when Common Core came out, I was really excited about the work and the professional development that I was getting to engage in to really develop these deep units that um, were just really solid. And it was a shift for me of spending more time on a topic than I had in the past, but being able to go deeper. And so in the moment, it felt really good. And I was just amazed at my students and how well they were doing. And they really understood it at a deep level. And then I would get them the next year, the very same students that I had taught the year before and would remember nothing. And it was Mm -hmm. as if six week unit had never happened. And I just was so frustrated by it. And I couldn't wrap my head around what was happening because I had the evidence that they understood it at one point and that they were able to do things with it. It was it was a deep understanding. They had this conceptual basis. They were able to, you know, apply different strategies and and explain their thinking and all of those things. But then it was like it was gone. And so I started to look into 
why was this happening and how could I fix it? And I came across the book, Make It Stick. Um, That was kind of my first introduction to uh, the ideas of retrieval practice and interleaving and spacing that uh, really piqued my interest. And So I started to just do a lot of reading on it and got really excited about some of the things that I was finding out about how we remember things and how we forget things and then some things to do to disrupt that forgetting cycle and that forgetting curve that happens over time. Um, And then Pooja was very gracious and she participated with us on a Twitter chat um, when we were talking about uh, that book and then Um, We really got into the cognitive science behind it. And that was right before her book, Powerful Aging, came out. So she and I connected when I was learning about this process. And then she was giving really great feedback when I was trying things with my students and trying to figure out, you know, what does this mean for my instruction and what needs to shift over time? Great. Um, That's really neat that you got to work with her. I I very much admire her work from afar. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. fantastic. She. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of her, um, she has a, a really neat like foot in two worlds. Like one of her feet is in this very deep PhD type land of uh, intense statistical studies. I'm going to call it, and her other foot is in communicating in a clear and simple way to the rest of us the results of those studies. So I, that's one of the things I really admire about her. I understand without having to read the you know, heavy lifting study, the, the, the important takeaway. So just a little mm-hmm. sidebar advertisement for her work. Did, would you agree with that? Is that, does that? Absolutely. And she also is a teacher. So she's teaching at um, Berkeley college. And mm-hmm. so she is ap- actually implementing these with undergraduate students of right. psychology. And so she gets that perspective as a practicing teacher too, um, which really just brings a lot into the work because she she uses it in an authentic setting with students yeah. first, you know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, in your article, your main focus is on I'm going to call it a vocab word or a concept, and it's this idea of interleaving. And I know mm-hmm. from make a stick and for from powerful teaching, I'd say there's maybe four powerful vocab words or something and interleaving Mm -hmm. is sort of one of the main ideas. So for starters, could you just give us uh, kind of a short form definition? Yeah. Interleaving basically means mixing up the practice that students are doing. So when they're learning a concept, um, not just having this blocked set of items that goes with it. I think a lot of times in math, we kind of break things down into these very discrete skills um, and interleaving focuses more on the big picture so that when you're practicing, you're practicing a lot of different things at once, not just one skill that you did that day in class. So, I mean, thinking about um, mixing up the types of problems that you see, that's what interleaving is in a nutshell. So you've given me a little bit of a flashback. I'm remembering being in say middle school or high school, and the teacher would say, tonight's homework is page 117, numbers two through 20 even. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, I go home and I do number two, and then I do number four. And almost from that point on, like I could almost not think, just, mm-hmm. just do the thing again, do the thing again, do the thing again. I, I just, 
And maybe halfway through it would switch. Oh, now we're doing that other thing. Do the mm-hmm. thing again. Do the thing again. Um, can you contrast, like what would an interleaving homework assignment look like? So if you had an interleaving assignment, um, let's say that you're studying proportional reasoning, which is one of those huge topics in middle school, um, the, the point of having an interleaved assignment is that you need to do some discrimination when you're solving those problems. So just like in that example you said, where if you have a blocked practice assignment, you can pretty much tune out after you've done a couple problems because they're all the same problem with different numbers. But with interleaving, uh, there will be some different proportional reasoning problems that are more open-ended and require you to think about how should I approach this this problem, um, which of the strategies that are in my toolkit make sense to use here. And so we're not just having, you know, today we studied unit rate. So all your problems are on unit rate. No, we're going to give you an interleave set that touches back on some things we've already looked at with proportional reasoning. And you're going to have to think about which ones really are asking for unit rate or unit rate is an efficient um, way to approach the problem. But there may be others where you're thinking about scaling and you don't need to use unit rate, but you have to make that distinction and that discrimination between the types of problems that require um, a certain strategy versus require others. And so that's what helps to trigger memory and the retention that students are um, having to think a little harder. And, and it's much harder on an interleaved assignment to tune out after you've done the first couple because you don't know what's coming next and you're ready to answer those. You you have the you know ability to do all of those problems, but your brain and your memory are working harder to do them. That from... From my teacher's perspective, that sounds wonderful. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think what I would have thought as a kid, especially <laughs> a kid. Like, suppose, suppose I was a 14-year-old, and as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I had um, always experienced math as this other thing. You called it blocked practice. I think that's important to call that idea out, too, for those of you who aren't familiar with the vocab. Blocked is sort of this traditional, a whole bunch of one thing, then a whole bunch of another thing. Um, anyway, if that if I'd always been doing blocked practice as a kid, and I got to my ninth grade year with Mr. Britton, uh, and Mr. Britton makes me work harder, essentially, <laughs> right? Because now I have to stay on my toes. I can't just kind of go into brain dead mode and do the stupid math. I have to think. So I'm curious. Um, did you kind of go through a transition where you had been more of a blocked practice person and then you started doing more of an interleaved practice approach? What, what, what was the student response to that? Yeah, for sure. When I um, started last year working on uh, a lot of these things in my classroom, I was very transparent with students about why we were doing this. And I think that a lot of students, especially in middle grades, early high school, have this identity with mathematics that they think that either they are good at math or bad at math. And a lot of that is based on you know, traditional practices such as blocked practice and things like that, where they've felt a lot of success with that model. Um, But perhaps their conceptual understanding is not as deep as they thought it was. So it can be a very frustrating experience for students, especially for students who are used to uh, quickly being adept at getting the answers and being successful 
full in math class. So a couple of things that helped with that, I was just really open about the research that I had read and why I was excited about it. Because when I was in school, I was that kid. I was the kid. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us teachers have been that kid where school kind of came easily to me and I fit well into that mold of, um, doing what I was told. And, you know, we, we learned something and then I practiced it and we moved on. But what was really eye-opening to me was in college, I had my first math methods uh, professor, um, Dan Miltner, changed my perspective completely because we were studying more conceptually. We were studying fractions was the first topic that I remember doing in his class. And I realized like, whoa, I don't really understand any of this. I had to look up the rules again and, you know, try and remember what the rules were. I didn't have anything to fall back on. So I think that when I shared that with my students that, you know, I was able to get through my math classes, but I didn't really understand math until I was in college. And, um, and I'm talking fractions, I'm talking basic math, you know, models for multiplication. Um, So that resonates with them and sharing, sharing the rationale and sharing what I'm learning about it. And then also just being really honest of this is going to, this is going to feel hard at first. And Um, that's actually a good thing for our brains that it feels hard because we are working harder at retrieving the information and, um, that's helping our memories. So being open about why we're doing it this way was important. And then the two pieces of these practices that I think are the most important is that interleaving and any of these retrieval practice skills, they are low or no stakes. So the Mm. kid's not a gotcha thing for the kids. It's not, you know, um, I'm not going to be grading this homework before you have a chance to get feedback from peers or just making it so that they are able to, uh, approach learning through a learner's viewpoint of being able to safely make mistakes and being able to, uh, reflect on that and learn from those things. And, um, Pooja's book, um, powerful teaching gives a lot of great examples of how to do that. So the, the low or no stakes is huge. And then feedback opportunities. So most often um, when they're getting practice and doing some of these things, they're getting feedback from each other. Um, They're referring back to their notes. They're doing things that are helping them to own the learning. And then I'm getting a good glimpse into how they're making sense of it as they go through. So it is really important to examine our own practices and make sure that we're not being punitive about things, especially when we know it's supposed to be a transition and it is supposed to be hard to make this shift. And that's why it's such a great learning opportunity and great strategies to use. But it also requires us to really be compassionate with how we are introducing it into our classes. And I'm certainly not, you know, blind or immune to a lot of the challenges um, Mm -hmm. you face in doing that. But, you know, we when you believe in what you're doing, you got to push back against some of that stuff and just say, listen, I'm not going to have a daily grade in my grade book because that's not how we learn. Um, Or, you know, there's ways around it. You can put in a participation grade or whatever. So there's things that you have to um do as a professional to make the best decision for creating the environment for your students to be feel safe in 
in faltering because they're going to um, when they start learning this way. And then over time, it does get a lot better. So if you can get them to hang with you um, to see the the payoffs in the long run, um, tests become less of a big deal. They are, you know, there's just a lot less anxiety in the classroom and there's just more conversation and less stress. So um, I think the transparency, the opportunities to make mistakes safely, and then the feedback are essential in getting getting them to buy in and, and getting them to hang with you while they're uh, making progress through this. That's awesome. I, I love that as time goes on, you found that there was less and less, it sounds like less and less pushback, less and less um, difficulty with the, with the concept because they experienced the benefit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the win. I, I always found in teaching math, as soon as kids started experiencing success, all the other difficulties would, were just gone. Behavior difficulties or focus difficulties. Like if kids learned that they could learn math and, and experience the joy of solving problems and expressing mm-hmm. themselves, I mean, it just, I, that, that would win the rest of the year, right? From there, yep. you can just build wonderful things. One, one phrase you used in your article was desirable difficulty. Mm-hmm. And I think you just, in a, in a way, you've addressed that. But I wonder if I could ask sort of what, what could possibly be desirable about difficulty? Mm-hmm. So that term actually was coined by um, a cognitive psychologist, um, Robert Bjork. And his whole premise besi- behind that phrase was just suggesting that if you purposely introduce certain difficulties into the learning process, as kids are going through it, it makes other things easier in the long run. And so a lot of it has to do with retention and memory um, so that they are, when you have to work harder to retrieve something um, and to discriminate like you do in interleaving, then your brain retains that more because you had to work for it. Um, And then it also um, just interrupts what is often referred to in a lot of the research as the forgetting curve, where when we first hear about a topic like that day when you go home and do the homework, you remember it you know, very well. And, and you're able to easily do that homework. But over time, you're forgetting things very quickly if you're not reintroduced to them. So the longer it's been, the more difficult it will be to remember. But what the term desirable difficulties is telling us is that we want it to be challenging so that our brain has to work to remember because it strengthens that memory over time. And so I think that um, that ties into what we were talking about with telling kids about this is that, you know, I always tell them, listen, if you already knew how to do all of this, then you wouldn't be learning anything new, you know? So learning is supposed to be a process that is involved. It doesn't have to be hard or feel bad, but it is an involved process. You can't just kind of sit back and Mm -hmm. receive information and expect to always know those things. Um, So I think that that's, that's kind of what that means is just making sure that you're if you really want to keep this information, you're going to have to feel some difficulty over time. But in the long run, that is a desirable thing because it will help you remember that information. So I guess maybe it becomes undesirable. As the teacher, you're kind of at the helm and you're kind of having to choose where to put the knob. I mean, it would be undesirable if the difficulty was 
too high, right? Or, yes. It, so, so did you find that difficult? <laughs> there, I'm saying difficult again. It, <laughs> challenging to to f- sort of suss out where to put the knob on difficulty. Yeah, it's definitely a delicate balance. And I think that one of the things that really helps is when we are doing um, interviewing, the problems are open ended. And so it doesn't feel like there's as much pressure um, because you have the space to respond to the question. So you don't have to choose you know, an option. Um, I'm not necessarily even asking you for a numerical answer. I'm asking you to show your thinking about this problem. And so the feedback piece is huge there, where making sure that kids have opportunities to get that low or no stakes feedback mm-hmm. before they get the high stakes feedback, you know, before the assessment or before um, something more formal. And that really does help with buy-in because the kids are able to see their own progression over time. And they're also able to, you know, hear from other people. It's not this um, endeavor all by yourself where you're trying something on your own, but then, you know, you can, you can collaborate, you can make it better before it's public, you know, beyond you and a partner, you and your small group. So um, that definitely helped. And, you know, it's just, it's the same as with anything, right? Like students who are shutting down, um, do so in, there are are always going to be students who shut down in whatever model of teaching that we're using. And typically it has a lot less to do with the model than with something else that's going on. And so, yeah, I mean, with everything, making sure that you're checking in with kids and, and just strengthening those relationships and seeing opportunities to find out what's going on and um, deal with whatever it is, because, you know, it's not the interleaving they're mad at. (laughs) It's it's (laughs) going on. Um, And typically, just like with any other type of teaching you're doing, you can figure that out and move forward from there. So I completely agree. And we we did our first podcast series on um, dealing with the COVID crisis. And a, a, a resounding theme of that was the importance of relationship. Mm-hmm. Like we could talk about videos and online tools and whatever, but the, it, over and over again, the conversation went back to caring for people and yep. and listening to them and, and trying to help meet their needs, um, which is way more important than interleaving or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Let's go to blocked practice for a minute. So I, I think I kind of intimated earlier that my observation is that blocked practice is the dominant model. Uh, it certainly mm-hmm. was when I was growing up. Now I'm 50, so times have changed. But uh, I just got out of the classroom a few years ago. And as of that time, my colleagues and other schools around me, and they were still using block practice as the as the way to practice. Uh, so my my question to you is just if, if you're curious or maybe if you could speculate, why is it that this more powerful um, practice isn't more widely um, sort of accepted? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things at play. And I think the biggest thing is that blocked practice works in the short term. And so if we are in a situation where, you know, I just need to show numbers on a test and then be done with the knowledge, then blocked practice works for that, you know, and, and you can get kids through, um, 
the unit and and they can do really well in the assessment and you can move on with life. Um, and so I do think, you know, it, it, for short term memory, there is um, definitely evidence that black practice works. Um, but the long term learning it takes a lot of effort on the the part of teachers and schools to make that shift. And, you know, I had the benefit of seeing my students um, two years in a row and recognizing the issue. We all hear, oh, they come to me, they they can't multiply or they can't do this or they can't do that. And we all kind of just blame the teacher before us. But or the teacher before you, there's really no one to blame. So you kind of have <laughs> well, to own you, it. There is somebody to blame, but <laughs> well, true, true. Um, but you kind of have to own it, and and you have to figure out, okay, so what is it that I have control over in this situation to um, fix this problem? Because I saw them do an amazing job. Right. You were there. I was there, and and it they they really got this, and I I can show you their old tests and their projects and whatever. Um, so I think that put me in the situation to really recognize the problem on a different level than just assuming that previously they hadn't done a good enough job with it. And then I sought out the learning, you know, that I started to look up memory, retention and things like that and and came across that book, Make It Stick, which was um, my first introduction to kind of the cognitive psychology that was going on and some of the research that had started to come to light. And then from there was able to do that. Um, and I know you mentioned earlier, you're on Twitter too, and Twitter has been a great professional learning opportunity for me. But I think that, you know, professional learning overall is lacking for teachers that we often have to seek out our own learning on our own time, on our own dime and things like that. So I think that there it's hard for teachers to make a big shift like that in practice without either coaching around it, um, ongoing professional development and things like that. So I think blocked practice and what we've always done kind of wins out because it's hard to make a big shift in your practice and sustain that shift all by yourself. So if you're not able to find community or you're not able to identify the problem, how do you really fix it? Yes. We would like to invite all of our listeners to visit our website at GetMoreMath.com, where you'll find helpful information about how Get More Math can help you transform the math education experience through targeted mastery and cyclical review. We welcome you to take advantage of our free trial for the 2021 school year. Find more information about the free trial at GetMoreMath.com. Now, back to the show. I hope that over time, uh, this technique gains more more footing and more general acceptance. Results speak, right? Especially with so much um, accountability nowadays and standardized testing. I wonder if that will um, that will tell. You know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that we're right now um, in a really opportune time for people to be learning about some of these techniques because of remote learning happening over the last however long um, and going into next year. And people are really starting to think about what practices do I need to have in place to support my students when I really don't know what they're coming in with and and maybe their current teacher is not 100% clear on what they really understand because remote learning was so new to all of us. So I think it's an opportunity and I hope that um, rather than, you know, 
pile on diagnostic, diagnostic testing and screeners and all this stuff that, you know, we give students some opportunities to show us what they know in more authentic settings. And I think that a lot of these powerful teaching tools can help do that um, in, a, in a less threatening way, in a more collaborative way than some of those other methods. Yeah, one of the things I've thought is, I, I, on the one hand, it seems very unfamiliar to go into a, a new school year and have this huge gap and all these unknowns. Uh, but on the other hand, at least for me as a, a ninth grade teacher, every time a kid walks through my door, <laughs> there there was a whole nother world of unknowns, right? I don't want to lessen the potential impact of trying to go to this fall, having had this huge gap at all. But in a way, it feels to me like it's the same as always. Like you always have a bunch of kids come into your room and you never know at the beginning who knows what and where they're coming from. And so a lot of the things that you always do as a teacher, you would still do. Yeah, for sure. And I think in the past, we've assumed more prior knowledge and maybe to our detriment, you know, that I can't just look at the sixth grade standards and say, oh, well, every kid that's coming into seventh grade is going to know all of these things and be able to do them. And so I agree. I mean, these are practices that are effective all the time, but I think that people are in a mindset right now that something has changed. And so it's kind of an opportune moment to jump on some of these practices and highlight things that um, speak to some of those uncertainties and maybe make um, us reevaluate some of the practices that we've done in the past where um, you have to have a dilemma in order to start to try and figure out how to solve it. And so for a lot of us, we don't, we kind of just don't have those dilemmas. You know, it's, we, we go with what we've done in the past and we want to do our best of our students, but not necessarily make big shifts in our thinking. So I think that people are kind of ripe for some change right now, Hmm. and it might be a, a good time to, um, for, for leaders and for administrators to, uh, push the envelope a little bit on some of the practices that that we have held very tightly to and say, hey, if we're willing to kind of reconsider some things, let's really think critically about some of the things that we're doing and, and what might we replace those with to um, better get to know our students and their mathematical thinking at the beginning of the fall or whenever we see them again. So let's say a, a teacher's listening to this and thinking, you know, I'm intrigued I'd like to try this out. Um, thus far, we've kind of getting down to brass tacks. One thing we've addressed is maybe some student pushback and how to handle that with transparency and encouraging kids to look look ahead to what they can gain. And um, uh, are there other, like what other challenges? I'm trying to put myself again in that teacher's shoes. Maybe maybe she'd be wondering, like, how, do, like, how much work is this? Because I know that just managing your day-to-day workload is a huge part of being a a teacher who survives, let's say. Um, what has the workload been like trying to transition from blocked to interleaved in particular? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm fortunate that uh, I have been able to use the illustrative math curriculum over the last two years, and it has a lot of um, really good practices built in. And their practice, which is meant to be homework, um, 
is interleaved. So there, they have some really good problems laid out for you um, that has some retrieval and some interleaving and spacing going on already. Um, so that's great. And since that's open source material, any teacher can get their hands on it. Um, but I will say I've done some professional developments around this. And, you know, um, one of the big pushbacks was on time, which is huge and very much true. Um, that we just never have enough time with our students. But I think that a big shift for me was evaluating what does my math block currently look like and what are some things that might be in there that don't need to take up so much time. And so when I was coaching, one of the big practices that um, people hung on to really tightly was going over homework at the beginning Uh, of every class period, right? So, I mean, it would sometimes take 20 minutes of of a, 60 minute block to do that. And so that was one of the things that when I was working with teachers, they were really open to, with the support of having a coach, they were open to trying to think about how else could we do this. And so, um, you know, asking kids uh, to give some insight into ones that they needed to talk about, or just simply posting the answers and having the kids write a quick reflection if they missed one of a question that they have, or just different ways to save some of that time. So, um, those are kind of the conversations that I had to have with myself, um, yeah. in my classroom were what do, what can I do to better structure this? And so I found that interleaving itself turned into weekly homework for me. So a lot of my students have, you know, a lot of responsibilities outside of school and daily homework is not manageable. I taught 130 students every day and wow. there's a way <laughs> that I can deal yeah. with. 130 homework assignments every day. It's not going to happen in any sort of meaningful way. And so by having a weekly assignment, we were able to take just three to five minutes at the beginning of class to say, okay, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions about number three, like, let's look at it together. Let's kind of talk about what are some strategies we might use for this problem, move on. And then, you know, the students would have an opportunity before um, an assessment to look back at some of that homework and go over things with their peers and ask additional questions and things like that. So it just kind of made less, less time of review and, um, having to uh, assess so formally all the time. I know what my students are thinking Mm -hmm. now because they're getting more opportunities to show me that during class. And so it wasn't so necessary to cling to having a weekly assessment or having, you know, something because I was seeing what they were thinking every day in class. So I think that it it is a shift and it's so hard because there's no one right way to do any of this with teaching that I wish there was a magic, you know, right. button that I could push and everybody could just have this beautiful, amazing class that worked all the time. But you kind of have to figure out what works for you and your students. Um, but the biggest thing is being willing to give up things that aren't working to replace them with something better. Um, I think it was Dylan William said something to the effect of you're taking a good practice and replacing it with a better practice. And so when we learn these new tools, we have to kind of just think about, well, if I'm doing this well, I probably don't need to do this anymore. And then making those those concessions for ourselves and, you know, just ever evolving like there is no binder of seventh grade math that I get to use every year, you know, and every year there's different kids in front of me and I have to think about what they need and adjust to that. And so, you know, 
we as teachers love to be super organized and super um, in control of everything and plan way ahead and do all these things, which are great. But we have to have that flexibility to be responsive in the moment and make room for new things when they come along. Excellent. I'm I'm looking through my list of things that I was going to ask you, and I have I have sort of a whole nother topic that I'd like to talk to you about. I loved I loved the little block on one of your blog posts where you said, uh, you know, there's this quote people say youth is wasted on the young, and there's an equivalency to say algorithms are wasted on those building conceptual understanding. Oh, that just that. That was the moment where I was like, you have to keep blog posting. Um, did you find that somewhere or did you just kind of make that connection? I, I made the connection. There's a video posted in that blog post um, that I was watching and I was and it was about, you know, just how people learn and make sense of things. And um, my personal experience is just kind of being always being taught the algorithms first and being mm-hmm. able to find, you know, some semblance of success with that as far as my grades and everything going through school and then really having that awakening in college of like, why didn't anyone ever teach me this way? (laughs) It makes so much sense. And um, so I think, you know, I made that connection because of my personal experiences and then also my experiences as a teacher and math talks or number talks are really something that is a daily routine in my classroom. And, um, really helps my students to kind of break out of that algorithmic thinking um, and try and be more creative and apply some of their visual skills and, and things to, um, to mathematics. And um, so I think that that connection came to me because when we take away their ability to use their intuition we really are taking away a lot of why those of us who teach math love math, right? Yeah. I don't love math because of algorithms. I love, <laughs> you know, a really interesting, complex um, topic that has a really cool story to it um, and a lot of connections across topics and things like that. So um, it just kind of clicked with me that, you know, this is not how people learn <laughs> and it, it isn't how I learned. If we're turning school into kind of a game, then yeah, you can play the game with things like blocked practice and learning the algorithm first. But um, what are you really taking away with you out into the world after you leave school? You know, so that was that was where that came from. I love it. And I can totally see talking about, since algebra is one of your primary responsibilities, specific areas where, um, you know, we lead with the algorithm traditionally. Mm-hmm. That, you, that you've actually found ways to kind of, no, no, let's lead with the kids building conceptual understanding. Because when it comes to long-term retention, uh, there is no like single, like you were saying earlier, like magic thing. Like if you interleave, why your kids will have long-term retention. There's mm-hmm. so many things to possibly address. And one of my very, very favorite is this understanding that algorithms are not the, they're not the be all, they're not the beginning. They're not the end. They're not the be all. They're not the end all. They're just, they're just shortcuts that we've developed to express, you know, powerful processes. But if that's, if it's just shoving those things into kids' brains, good luck for long-term retention. Like who remembers all that stuff? And the funny thing is, um, an answer to that question is I do, I do, but like, that's because I'm a kid who's good, good at math. Like Mm-hmm. I know the distance formula and the Pythagorean theorem and the slope formula. Um, so, but so what? 
Right. <laughs> and what can you do? Like, what are you, what do you have to fall back on if that doesn't work for a problem that you're encountering? You know, that That's one of right. the tools is not the right tool. Okay. So now what, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, that's yeah. what that's the thinking we want them to be doing to build toward that algorithm instead of, you know, oh, shoot, my algorithm doesn't work. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And a lot, you know, a lot of kids who think that algorithms are king will shut down at that point. So, right. you know, we want to make sure that they know that there's there's other things. There's other ways to think about this. And that math itself is not that thing. That's, that's right. It's not antithetical to math, but it's like a sidebar to math. It's just a convenience thing. It's, you know, well, I got, I, I allowed myself to get started on that path, but I'm going <laughs> to stop going down it. Um, but I, I, it's probably equally favorite to me is in particular, how to teach algebra one scope and sequence wise in a way that is always concepts first where kids, you know, they're, they're thinking algebraically. Um, and one of my, okay, this, I'm going to just indulge myself just slightly, but just because whenever these thoughts come to me, this rises up, I, I particularly dislike the slope formula. Like mm-hmm. I, I have an active hatred of the slope formula just because of the damage that it does to so many of our kids. I think we're, we're yeah. like, now we're going to find slope. Here's the formula. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. No, no. Like anyway, um, well, let's close our, our talking about cognitive science. Just with one little uh, um, final question. Somebody's thinking about getting more involved. They're intrigued by the idea. They want to kind of get started. One approach might be to read something. Uh, now, you've mentioned two somethings they could read. Maybe you could reiterate those and mention anything else that you thought would be um, useful for a beginner. Yeah, so um, great primer to the cognitive science was the book Make It Stick. And then the follow up to that um, powerful teaching is really accessible and has so many examples from classrooms. Um, that those are both really good reads. And if if I had to pick just one, it would be powerful teaching, but reading Make It Stick first really did help me kind of have a foundation of what was going on. They had non-education examples um, that helped me understand the science a little bit better. Um, powerful teaching has tons of just really classroom uh, applications that are ready to go. Thank you. I, I would add to that, if you're looking for the short form of that, there's a, a website, retrievalpractice.org, that has PDFs that summarize the core takeaways from what you would find from both of those books. Uh, and I think they're very well done, very clear, sharp, concise. So if you're trying to get the basics down, that might be a, a, a good place to start as well. Definitely. Well, Anne, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I'm, congratulations on finishing your school year an hour ago or maybe two hours ago now. <laughs> yes, and, thank uh, you. I understand you're getting married in a few weeks. Some, some uh, Next time. Saturday, yes. Yeah, just uh, over a week. <laughs> congratulations on that too. Um, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Get More Math podcast. Drop us a comment and let us know what you thought about this episode. You can always connect with us at getmoremath.com. Have a great day.